Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my girl is Phil Iderson. He is the Managing Director of Art of Procurement. And what these guys do is they elevate the impact on business of procurement. So help me understand something, Phil. First of all, give me your background, because I know it's a fairly interesting uh, one. Let's start with that. Thank you so much for inviting me on the show, Marcus, first and foremost. Thank you. You know, my background, as quickly as I can put it together, is, you know, I've had 20 years plus in the procurement industry. Uh, I've worked on the direct materials side, the indirect materials and services side, pretty much touched everything there is to touch within procurement, you know, whether it's in the automotive business, pharmaceutical, tech, CPG, you name it. You know, I've had the opportunity to be a head of procurement. So I've done that for a little while. I've uh, lived out in India, leading a captive shared services organization for aimed at the internal procurement team. And then I've been on the other side of the table as a consultant and driving transformations. And then about five, six years ago, I set up my own business. Excellent. Okay, well, just explain what's the difference between direct and indirect materials for those. Yeah, so really direct procurement is the procurement of things that go into a product that's ultimately sold on. And so, you know, from a, an automotive... components, things like that. Exactly. And indirect is essentially all the things that a business needs to operate, but that doesn't go into the final product. So that might be their cleaning materials. It might yep. be um, so, computer systems, all that kind of thing. Yeah. So think of direct as being, uh, as falling under the cost of goods sold and indirect falling under your SG&A. SG&A? Uh, sales general and administration costs. Excellent. Okay, we're a big fan of catching people with acronyms. <laughs> okay, and uh, captive shared services, explain that. Yeah, so a captive shared service organization is essentially an internal center of excellence where you, know, you build, a, you build a, a separate department or division within a business to service folks, and you usually do it in a low-cost country, to service the folks who are in a higher-cost country. For India, you know, we had a team of 200 folks who would be going and understanding what the market, what trends were in particular markets are the things that our buyers were buying, and then feeding that information to our buyers so they could be more effective in the negotiations. Excellent. Okay. So in terms of uh, who you serve as a business, I'd like to understand that. Yeah. So we serve two different personas. You know, one is Sales and marketing folks who sell to procurement, but sell, sell services to procurement that procurement buys, not necessarily everything. You know? So if procurement wants to buy some technology to help, to help them be more efficient or effective in the procurement process, then those are the kind of people that are on the sales So supply chain management, procurement management systems, rebate yeah. systems, that kind of thing. Yeah, consultants that want to get in front of the, the chief procurement officer. So that's one persona. The other persona is the chief procurement officer and the executives who work inside of these procurement organizations because we're helping them be more impactful, be more effective, increase the capabilities of their team so that they can have a bigger impact on their organization. Excellent. Okay. So historically, I've been relatively hostile towards procurement because I've come from a sales background. But as I've grown up and become a little bit older and wiser, I've realized there is real value in partnering with the right kind of procurement. Mm-hmm. Now, I think certainly in previous episodes, we've talked about the difference between a strategic procurement operation yeah. and a tactical 
procurement operation. Would you mind going into some detail as to the difference between them and why an organization should have one or the other? A fully functioning procurement organization will have both. They will have both strategic resources and they'll have both, and they'll have tactical resources. Oftentimes, that's not the case. So tactical resources, when it comes from a procurement perspective, are folks who are helping to to run a process. So their business stakeholder uh, has identified a need. They want to go out and bring in a supplier or they want to go and do a competitive bid to find the right supplier. And the tactical procurement person will go there and say, here's my six steps or here's my seven steps that I'm going to take you through to help you get the best deal, whatever the best deal is and however the best deal is defined. But they're running the process. They're being a gatekeeper, if you will. And that's very tactical from a procurement perspective because the end goal is, yes, you are able to find a supplier and you bring a supplier on and then the, the tactical procurement person will then disappear into the background and then they'll start working on the next deal. And it's just kind of a conveyor belt of deals that they're working on. The strategic part of procurement will be where that person is really trying to seek to understand what the outcomes are that the stakeholder is trying to drive as opposed to what the scope may be that they have in mind. So what are they, what ultimately the outcomes that you're wanting and how do we think about helping you drive to those outcomes? And that may be by using a completely different kind of supplier than you had in mind. It may be doing it internally versus doing it going external. Um, it may be doing a hybrid. You know, you're thinking about different delivery models. And so you're helping to kind of build a scope that drives outcomes, not that just puts a contract in place. And the outcomes, the way that that procurement person will approach that conversation is very different because they're focused on outcomes than the tactical one who is just focused on what savings can I put on a spreadsheet that I achieve through running this process? Okay, because I think where a lot of salespeople have been bruised and become jaded is they've come up against the tactical procurement person. But again, what I see is very often salespeople think that purchasing people are focused on the price, whereas in fact, very often, they won't buy the lowest cost provider because um, they have a better understanding of the outcomes. And so the question I have here, how frustrating is it when you have a salesperson who comes along on rails trying to peddle you a product Mm -hmm. instead of one that actually spends the time to try and understand the implications of making that purchase and getting it right or wrong? Yeah, I mean, it changes the game for the conversation. You know, if somebody's coming just to try and sell a product, then you just see them as a traditional salesperson who's doing who wants volume and they don't care about you. They just want to get your product in, in your company. Whereas if you're having somebody who's coming from more of a, you know, discovery process, you know, maybe there isn't an opportunity for you because of whatever reasons, you know, you never know until you have those conversations. But that procurement person is going to be far more open to having a conversation because they're still pretty open-minded. Like they're trying, again, they're trying to find like a strategic procurement person will have done all the, you know, let's try and uh, take, maybe there's some fat in there from a cost perspective. They've already done that. That's been taken out. You know, you do that and you can do that once. Now they're trying to figure out, okay, how can I, again, drive outcomes and think differently that may reduce cost, but there's going to be other ways that I get measured. And it's through those kind of discovery conversations that they start to formulate ideas that will then build into their strategies. 
And that might not mean that, you know, you're going to have a second conversation next week. It may not mean, you know, you're going to have a second conversation in six months time. But when the time is right for them to, to put in place, uh, put into practice a strategy for kind of the next iteration of buying whatever it is that's being bought, they're going to come back to you. And that's when they're going to have the conversations with you. Right. This has opened up a whole raft of really interesting questions. Um, but before I do, I'm going to uh, delve into the one that's really pissing me off at the moment. Yeah. Is what passes for great in sales fit for purpose? In sales? It's a really interesting question. And I don't have an answer because I, I wouldn't claim to know what great sales is because I'm still on a learning journey myself, you know, now being the other side of the table and being a seller, you know, uh, having my own business. I would say the buying process is changing. And so you think that one of the things that we try and help the procurement folks deal with is the fact that, you know, on the sales side, you have access to so much technology now where you're able to understand when somebody's looking for something and you can get in front of them. You get in front of them the moment that, that they're even having a thought about wanting to buy something. That kind of changes the game for your relationship building and nurturing so that procurement doesn't even find out about it until you know it's too late to do anything about it. And that's a challenge for procurement people. So from a sales perspective, I would say you know traditional selling, which is the, I have a product, I'm trying to sell it, and you know procurement, you're kind of getting in the way, is, I would argue, against that being particularly effective. It's really all about relationships. And the more you can bring relational selling, I mean, I think that that's going to go a long way. Of course, that's not a, a catch-all because there's so many procurement orgs that, that won't be amenable to that just because they're kind of old and traditional and they're still kind of stuck in an old way of thinking. But um, yeah, as to the question of, of sales, of best-in-class sales being fit for purpose, honestly, I don't really know. Uh, and I'd love your perspective on that. What most organizations in the last 40 years have turned down the wrong road with, I think, and this has been certainly in technology and in fast growth areas where you've attracted investors, and by investors, I mean gamblers and speculators, sorry, private equity and venture capital. The customer has become an inconvenient afterthought. And I agree with you. I, I fundamentally believe that a salesperson's job is to ensure buyer safety. Every prospect, every customer deserves to feel safe when they deal with a seller. But since the rise of the corporate raider in the late 70s and early 80s, and Milton Friedman peddling the lie that we should all worship at the altar of shareholder value, businesses have refocused their attention on growth at any cost. There's been a massive increase. 30 years ago, there were two major merchant banks. Today, there are 8,000 venture capital firms. And that's driven the price of uh, an investment up. Now they drive people into debt. That debt has to be serviced. They have to grow so they can fiddle their valuation. And that's turned salespeople into transactional sellers which is fine if you're dealing with a tactical buyer and it's really just a matter of making the sale. But yeah. you leave a lot of money on the table there and very often you end up with the wrong solution because God knows how many times procurement has run an RFP and then three years later they're running it again because it's failed to deliver. So what I really would be curious about is 
in terms of strategic purchasing, describe to me the role, the jobs they're trying to get done, the fires they're trying to put out. So we've got an understanding of what it's really like to be a genuinely strategic purchaser. Yeah, I think that there's two roles of a strategic uh, procurement person. One is the blocking and the tackling. And that's the day-to-day. That doesn't go away. And, and oftentimes that can make a bigger part of their job than... Uh, are we talking about getting in the way and get, um, tripping people up? Or are we talking about <laughs> building the block and tackle to do the heavy lifting? Yeah, we're talking about building kind of, doing the, the, the things that they need to do on a day-to-day basis so they have the right to help their organization more strategically. And so, you know, that's going to mean things like making sure the suppliers are paid on time, making sure that for better or for worse, that if they do have savings targets, that those are taken care of, making sure that, you know, they're not getting in the way of things and that they're, they're enabling the business to buy the things that they want when they want them, as opposed to being the gatekeeper. Those are things just on a day-to-day basis that they are dealing with. They're dealing with putting out fires, you know, within, uh, and perhaps this is something that, that if you're outside of procurement, you don't necessarily see. Every time something goes wrong and there's a supplier involved in it, it's procurement's job to fix it. So every, whether it's anything to do with procurement or not, and that can be, you know, deliveries being late. It can be an issue with quality. It can be, you know, a relational problem. You, you know, you name it. If somebody in the business has a problem with a supplier, suddenly they push that on procurement and they make it procurement's job to fix. And that takes a heck of a lot of time out of procurement's day, which is why you then find them sometimes rushing these the RFP processes or only being tactical because they don't actually have the time to be strategic because they're working on all these fires. But let's assume that they're taking care of that, they're doing the blocking and tackling, they've got time to be strategic. What they're then doing is they're looking at they're looking at what they buy from a category perspective, so or a subcategory perspective. So that means, you know, if you're buying cleaning services again, you're looking at the world of cleaning services that you're buying as an organization. And are you doing that most effectively? Is the strategy that you have one where you should be using local providers or should you be using a global provider? What are some of the changes in the market that are happening that you should be protecting yourself from a risk perspective? You know, where's the plan B and plan C? if, um, you know, the shortages of chemicals. They're looking at this big picture and they're always in the, in the market talking to people, wanting to learn. And that's an opportunity for sellers just to educate because procurement folks who are thinking strategically never forget the people on the supply side who gave them the insights or validated their insights to help them build their strategies. That doesn't mean that you're guaranteed to get a deal but what it does mean is that you're going to be part of the conversation when they, when they have, having put all this together at the end of kind of the strategy review, now it's, okay, let's go and we've determined what the new strategy is. We've got the buy-in of the business, which is often the hardest thing. The best people in procurement will do this alongside the business versus showing up and saying, hey, stakeholder, here's a new strategy. But once that strategy is formed, then it's about execution. And then that's where, you know, you'll see more of the, with RFPs, incumbent negotiations, you know, new trying to bring innovation from you and doing pilots. That's where all that stems from is the strategy piece. Okay. So how are procurement compensated, measured, recognized? Mm-hmm. For the vast majority of procurement people, they'll be compensated on a just a flat salary. 
you know, with a, an annual bonus that is a the corporate annual bonus. So whether it's 10%, 15% of salary, whatever that looks like. And it's typically tied to both organizational performance and departmental performance and perhaps some individual performance. But, you know, when you think about the age-old question of are procurement compensated for getting cost savings, the answer is generally no. And if they are, it's only a small fraction. And that's just based on the fact that if they're measured on cost savings, their performance on cost savings will go into their performance review. And a part of their compensation will be tied to their performance review. So what other aspects are involved in the performance review? What else is measured there? It depends on the organization and what they value. But most of the time, it's how much influence do you have over the spend that is in your category or your area of responsibility? So how good of a job have you done in building relationships with stakeholders so the stakeholders trust you to to help them buy the things that they want to buy? And then it will be cost savings if the, the organization has cost savings as a measure. You know, are you, did you meet your goal? Did you exceed your goal? Were you under your goal, but is the mitigating circumstances? And that mitigating circumstances is a big thing because that differs from one company to the next. You know, some companies, like if you're, if you're working in an organization that is a low margin business, such as automotive, there rarely are any mitigating circumstances for you missing your cost savings goal and, you know, whether that can be overlooked. But the vast majority of, of other businesses where the margins are higher, you know, if you've got stakeholders who value you and will put a good word in for you, that carries as much weight, if not more weight, than whether you make your cost savings goals or not. Okay. So the way I tend to look at strategic procurement is a bit like a night bombing raid. So you're flying over your territory, you drop the bombs, and you're seeing all these flashes of light and little pop. And these are all the centers of dissatisfaction and the pinch points within the business. And good strategic procurement will see that entire landscape. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be asking questions like, well, what can we replace? Who else is going to be affected if we make this purchase decision? Mm -hmm. How many other parts of the business can we impact positively if we make this uh, purchase? Does it make sense to hang on to what we've got and sweat it? Or will we end up delivering more value and help the uh, board's strategy be executed sooner, faster, more efficiently, more profitably? Now, the challenge that I think purchasing people are very often very busy. And in many organizations, they've been used as a hammer crack down on their suppliers. Now, um, I've seen this in the past. I had a printer client many years ago, and they serviced Boots for about 14 years. And they were very close to Boots. They loved them to bits. Uh, They would drop anything to service Boots. Mm -hmm. Then they brought in an external purchasing function, and everything was driven on price. All of a sudden, they were no longer willing to uh, go the extra mile. And so, again, I think it's really, really important to understand which of your supplier relationships are really key in the same way that it's really important to understand which components are integral to whether or not you can make the Panzer tank move. Because if it's the one screw and the only manufacturer that uh, makes three million pounds worth of kit sit there idle, then you need to understand that. 
but I, I don't think there is enough dialogue with uh, procurement and the rest of the business mm-hmm. very often. So what advice would you give to executives in terms of developing a stronger, more pragmatic working partnership with procurement? There's, you know, there's so much to unpack there as well. You know, you talked about procurement making decisions. Ultimately, procurement doesn't make decisions. Procurement can influence decisions. You know, and procurement is always on a path to have more influence so that they can be the ones that are ultimately influencing the, the buy decision. But procurement doesn't have any money. You know, they're spending the money. The business stakeholders are the ones that are spending the money. Um, so I think that's always a, um, a challenge that procurement has because the number one, so we ran a survey. We did a, a, a virtual event back in, uh, we do them typically every six months or so. And we ran a survey with one we did in October. We asked procurement leaders, what's the number one challenge that they're facing right now? You know, and had a list of things, whether it was to uh, get cost savings, whether it's access to data, whether it's culture, mindset, all these things. The number one response from 600 leaders was the perception of procurement. So they, they are challenged themselves with, the perception of procurement, both internally and externally. And the problem that drives internally is because, you know, you talked about procurement being the people who are are, are dragged in and to beat up the suppliers. Well, in most organizations, that's all that the executives within those organizations know what to ask of procurement. And so that's why they're brought out as that tool and that lever. Because a CFO will look and say, procurement, all I know that you can do is get me some cost savings when I need some cost savings. So I'm going to bring you in when you need some cost savings. And when I don't need some cost savings because my business cycle is in a different spot, I don't need you anymore. So procurement's kind of fighting that to try and demonstrate that we can actually bring a lot more value to you as an organization than um, just delivering cost savings. Um, you You talked about the, the boots example. I think that is one of the challenges that procurement does have is that for a lot of the more tactical procurement groups, they look at things on this, they look at importance of spend and importance of supplier in terms of how much money do we spend with them. And they do that because they look at, the procurement person will get a spend analytics report and the spend analytics report will tell them, these are the categories that I have that I buy and this is how much I spend and these are my top suppliers. And, you know, if, you, if those suppliers don't make the, the 80-20 cut in terms of spend, so they look at the top 80% of spend, you know, what are the suppliers that make that up? And it's typically 5 to 10% of the number of suppliers that make up 80% of spend. If you don't make that cut, we don't care about you. But within only that cut is all these really important suppliers that either bring a lot of risk if you upset them or if you damage the relationship with them or those are the suppliers that are going to be really integral to the future growth of the business because that's where all the innovation and experimentation is taking place. The tactical procurement teams look at those and say, you know what, low spend, not really important. You know, I'll just treat them as a commodity. And, you know, I'll just try and do a quick RFP or whatever and get some money out of them and move on to the next thing. And the more strategic ones will look and realize the future of the business is happening here. And it's happening in this $20,000 a year provider who's doing some really interesting experiments, you know, with our R&D team or something like that. And so I got to make sure that I nurture that relationship. The organizations that do that, pretty few and far between. From a, an executive perspective, I think the question you asked was like, what can a sales executive do to 
I think to, to partner with procurement, be more effective in the partnering with procurement. Was that the question? Um, well, that's a great question. Uh, that was coming next. It's uh, what can procurement do to be more strategic and partner with the rest of the business so that they are a value uh, adding center rather than the cost reduction? Because you know, you, you've alluded to it, that the number one uh, challenge is perception of procurement. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the examples that I've come across, procurement's been sat there and they're beating up a supplier that uh, the line of business has been nurturing for months or years. They know that they are the right vendor and you've got some arsehole tactical procurement person beating the crap out of them and the vendor's thinking, you know, I don't need this shit. Um, But equally... The rest of the business could benefit enormously if procurement was able to join the dots and had the relationship within the business to have those conversations. Yeah, and you know the the supplier gets the short straw of that because the reason that they're pissed off, the buyer is pissed off, is because you know they've not been involved until now, and so because the business has been doing whatever they've been nurturing the relationship with the supplier. And the supplier is as guilty of this uh, oftentimes as the stakeholder. Maybe they've deliberately done that because they want to nurture this relationship and figure, we'll figure out procurement later. You know, we'll get to a point where we're the only game in town and procurement aren't going to have a choice. Or maybe they just were guided or coached by the stakeholder not to involve procurement. But when procurement's going to get involved in that, then they're going to look at that as, as people are trying to avoid us. And therefore, if they try to avoid us, I'm going to make their life as difficult as possible. You know, okay. whether that's the right answer or not, but that's the human side, you know, yeah. is... I, I get that. Absolutely, 100%. So the, the next question, which is really key, is how do you engage with procurement when they are busy, 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 they're putting out fires, and they've got a bit of a reputation for being the gatekeeper? but you know that you can bring significant value and you can make them the hero. How do you go about having that conversation? Yeah, you know, I think that you need the conversation in parallel with your stakeholder. So, that, you know, you need to make sure your stakeholder's an advocate. I hesitate to say this, but when you're in a situation like that and the buyer is making this very tactical and transactional, then you've got to play the same game. You know, I'm playing the same game as, you know, you've got to come in and you've got to have money on the table that you're willing to give up and let them do their job and move on and think that they had a win. And they'll do that pretty quickly. If they're looking at this as a tactical process, if that buyer is able to say, okay, you know, I was at, I parachuted in, I was parachuted in kind of late. I was kind of frustrated at that. But look at me, I did a great job at negotiating, you know, 5% out of the, t- out of the cost. I can put that on my spreadsheet. I can put that in my system. I can add it to my goals. I can check the box and move on and I'll never have to do anything with that provider again. And everyone's kind of left alone to do their own thing. That's the opposite outcome to the one I'm trying to establish. Right. Um, I, certainly, uh, you know, when I've spoken to Mark Schenkius um, and Jill Robbins and guys like Andy Shaw and Dave Broom, they've been really clear that first of all, they almost never buy the low bid. Secondly, when a supplier tries to buy the business with a discount, it really pisses them off because they know that they didn't come with a sharp pencil and they had some fat in the deal 
And so now they're tempted to just keep squeezing until the pit squeaks. Those people are coming from organizations that are more strategic. So, you know, you're thinking about it from if you're approaching an organization that's tactical in nature and you can see that they're only treating this as a transaction, then that would be the way to get in and get out of the transaction as quickly as possible. You know, if you're looking at this as if this is an organization that does think more strategically about procurements, the role that procurement has to play and, you know, that they want to be an enabler, they want to be your advocate, they want to think about outcomes, then absolutely, you know, what the past guests have said is the way to, to work because you want it to be a collaboration and you want it to be, uh, you know, very partner-driven. But if you go into a tactical procurement group who's only looking for one thing, then, you know, from a sales perspective, you want to get in and get out as quickly and as unharmed yeah. as possible. Mark Schenkis talks about uh, red chairs and blue chairs. Anyone who's in a blue chair is playing a tactical role, and if both of them are blue, the table is blue. If they're playing a strategic game, they're in a red chair. And if both are in mm-hmm. red, then the table is red. But if one is blue, one is red, then the table is blue. And it's, it's entirely a tactical conversation. So if you find yourself knowing that you are a potentially a strategic supplier, but you find yourself with a tactical buyer, what advice would you give at that point? Yeah. That's a great Especially question. if you don't need the business. If you don't need the business, then you've got to hold your ground. And ultimately, the stakeholder will need to... There'll be a point where the stakeholder needs to escalate the lack of support that they're getting from their procurement person. And you know, escalate that either within their line of command or within the procurement line of command. If you've got a procurement organization that you believe is a strategic procurement organization and you happen to have somebody who's in a role that is playing a very tactical role, then they just might be the anomaly. You know, so it's, how do we work our way around that? If you don't need the deal, you know, you've obviously got a lot more leverage and you're in the position of power in any negotiations. So you can start to ask for whatever you want, or, uh, you know, you can make life difficult for the stakeholder who's doing the deal. And that's probably what I would, I would think if you want to go, if you want to make sure, if you, you want to increase the chance of having that strategic relationship with procurement, then it may be with at a higher level of the organization than the, the level that you're working with. Uh, it may be that, you know, you just see this is a tactical buyer. We'll kind of get in, we'll get out. We have a strategic relationship with our stakeholder. Let's make sure we maintain that. And the stakeholder often has a delicate balance of, you know, they try to be the good cop because, you know, they, they have to work with the supplier at the end of the day. Um, maybe they're even the you know complicit in the buyer seemingly being tactical mm-hmm. because that's just the role that they're playing, you know, negotiation or an onboarding because they they might want that, but they don't want to be seen as the one that's driving it. And procurement often f- plays that role. So they play the bad cop. Yeah, exactly. Okay. A strategic procurement person may enable that. You know, they may be coaching their stakeholder on how to play that role. So to some extent, it depends on the relationship that you as a seller have with your stakeholder as to whether you believe that that's happening or not. But, you know, oftentimes that does happen. As as I think, like, when I was a buyer, I wasn't an expert in the things I bought. You know, my stakeholder's the expert in the things I bought. I bought all kinds of crazy things from childcare to light bulbs and everything in between. So, you know... (laughs) My method of operation was almost was always like I'm there to enable 
the expert who is the person who's the buying. You know, he's the engineer. It's the person who's going to be responsible for the service. My job is to bring all the procurement best practices to align with their knowledge of their category. So collectively, we can figure out what the right strategy to execute on is. And then as part of that, you know, they may I may be conditioning them to play the good cop because that helps me get information. Uh, or they may want me to play that role because, again, they know they got to work with this person afterwards and they don't want to damage any relationships. Because one, one of my pet peeves is, you know, you go through these negotiations and you think that you can beat people up and you can lie or be unethical or all those things and you think that as soon as the deal is done, everyone's going to be friends again. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like... Cut corners you know, and they'll get even. Yeah, do you not realise that everything that you're doing during a negotiation is going to impact the relationship? Uh, even if, well, you know, even if it shouldn't, we're all human. Well, uh, I, I do a lot of work uh, with strategic alliances, partnerships, and one of the first red flags is, are they easy to do business with from the start? Mm-hmm. Is the communication clear, open, transparent, uh, responsive? Because if it's not during the early stages of the sale, guaranteed it's going to be a shit fest later. You're just going to find yourself constantly chasing, doing battle, trying to backfill. If you feel hard done by, you'll be looking to make up the fat from somewhere else. So you'll look for ways to cut costs, cut corners. You'll put your B or C or D team on it because you won't value them. And this can have massive ramifications. So one of the urban myths, I guess, is that procurement people go on sales training courses. It Does that happen? No, not at scale. Okay. Maybe some organizations have done it, but, but they haven't. What procurement has a great opportunity to do that we coach and encourage procurement people to do is actually work with their sales teams so that they can help their sales teams better understand how to work with the procurement folks of the people they try to sell to. It, it baffles me that that doesn't happen more often. I mean, what, why on God's earth would you have an expert who knows how your prospective buyer functions mm-hmm. and not engage with them? It is just crazy. And it's such an easy way for procurement to show impact beyond going and beating up suppliers too, because at the end of the day, businesses value revenue growth more than they value bottom line expense management as much as procurement can do to help drive top line growth is so much more impactful on the business than what they do from a day to day and it's so it's such an easy no-brainer yeah it baffles me why that doesn't happen more well would that not go a long way to solving the perception of procurement problem i believe so i mean i think it's a no-brainer and it's kind of a low-hanging fruit for how you can do more within your business you know we we encourage people to work with their sales teams to understand the objections of their uh, prospects. You know, what are they, what are they challenged? What are they challenged by? How can then you as procurement help to overcome some of those objections in the field? Uh, it could be, so we talked with uh, a large telco company, you know, they found one of the objections in the field was risk management. Like, do you really, how much do you know that the risk uh, how are you managing and mitigating risk across your supply base? And how do I know, have confidence that when I buy from you, you know, your service is always going to be on. So procurement worked with a partner to build an app that went on the, the iPads of all the field sales teams that whenever they get that objection, they just press a button and there's all your first party, second party, third party risk. And it's monitored in real time. That has as much of an impact on the business because it's getting rid of objections 
than you know saving three percent on a deal will have on the bottom line. It was really interesting. I interviewed chap uh, around uh, supply chain risk management, and what very few people really appreciate is just how complex large enterprise supply chains are and how little visibility they have. Yeah. Yeah, Apple has probably 20 to 30,000 suppliers, 95% of which are behind the Great Wall of China. So outside of the main industrial centers, they've got no idea who their suppliers are. And so from a purchase perspective, if you can mitigate risk and provide certainty and peace of mind, that puts you in a premium uh, position when it comes to pricing as well. Your business has to care about risk mitigation is the only thing I would say about that. And, you know, you have events like the pandemic which bring risk mitigation to the fore, but then everyone forgets and, you know, risk becomes not as big of an issue again. So it's been, one, it's it's a real good opportunity for procurement as a, for a procurement professional to have more of an impact on their business is the consideration of risk and understanding it and identifying it and mitigating it and having business continuity plans in place. The business has to care about it. And I think that's often a challenge that a lot of procurement folks have is actually selling selling the business case for risk management internally. It's really interesting. An observation I've developed over the years is there are three things that every business is trying to manage. Time, money, and risk. Money is obviously the purview of finance, and that grabs their their attention. Time is typically the poor buggers in middle management trying to make sure they've got their resource. And um, the executive team making sure they've got enough coverage. But when it comes to risk, what they really want is certainty. The minute you start talking about risk, they either glaze over or their pulse uh, you know, doubles in speed. But what they really want is certainty. And I, I look at areas in the business where they effectively are playing a crapshoot. And they're two of the most fundamental areas are marketing and sales. When you look at marketing spend, most of that, if we're being absolutely honest, is just a bloody great guess. And you look at the amount of money that they spend on digital marketing, you get a click-through rate of more than one click for only 1.91% on Google Ads and 1.61% on Facebook. The programmatic ads have a 0.035% click-through rate. And these organizations are spending us the price of the GDP of a small country on digital advertising. You look at the sales process, particularly the front end of the funnel, the average conversion rate from dial to a second meeting, i.e. you ended up having a meaningful conversation with the decision maker and they thought it was worthwhile enough to invite you back to uh, take the conversation forward. That's 0.3%. Now, US businesses spend, I think it's uh, a trillion dollars a year running their sales operations. Mm -hmm. Why would anybody run their sales operation in such a half-hour slipshod manner. Uh, I mean, surely that has to be an area where procurement could really come to bear and challenge the hegemony of um, the likes of sales and marketing. 
Yeah, you know what? What I would say is that if the procurement folks, like the marketing folks and the sales folks, obviously have reasons for doing what they're doing, and maybe they've got a good ROI or they can they know what the customer acquisition cost is and all those things. Maybe they don't, but you know, maybe they do. <laughs> I'm currently clutching my mouth with both hands to try not to scream. But yeah. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt just for a moment. Okay. I'm going to doubt the benefit, but yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the role that procurement can play is that they can obviously take a look at that and help the business figure out if there's a better way. What's a better way in the marketplace? Is there different technology they can use? Are there providers that have better look in certain elements of that that can help compound, you know, the results? Is there things that you're doing that you've set up in your contract that are resulting in that because of, dial times uh, in call centers or whatever it may be with the KPIs that you have with the providers that are driving bad behaviors. You know, we can help with those things. But most of the time, a procurement person is going to come to a marketing person or a salesperson, and they're going to be defining the specification or the scope of work. And so and we're, just, we're running with that and saying, okay, how are we going to help you achieve what it is that you're asking for? So we're not necessarily there to tell the marketer or the salesperson that they're not doing their job the right way because they're, uh, quote, unquote, the expert. And the the facilitator and the enabler. Where risk comes in from a procurement perspective, it's more about security of supply. So once you've decided what you're going to buy, what are we doing to make sure that there's going to be no problems in you getting what it is that you've contracted to buy? And that can be a physical supply chain. You know, I'm buying something from China that's going to go through Hong Kong, that's going to go through... Egypt that's going to whatever, what are making sure that it's going to get to where A from B or if it doesn't, what's my backup plan? Or for services, which we don't look at enough, which is, you know, for, for a call center, for example, I used to buy call centers. What happens if you have got all of your call centers in Manila and there's a cyclone in Manila and the whole city floods? Well, all of a sudden, all of your call centers are offline. So how do you, um, how do you mitigate that risk? Those are the risks that procurement is looking at not necessarily the risk of is what you're buying fit for purpose. That's really, really interesting because surely if the business was joined up, they would be asking those kind of questions. And I I mean, another area where I think procurement should really grow and develop is actually sitting in on sales and marketing meetings, Mm -hmm. on customer meetings as well to understand the impact of their purchasing. Because then far, far too often nowadays, I see the customer at the end of this long chain of abuse. And I'll give you a great example. A good friend of mine two days ago was complaining because he rang up British Airways because he was flying today. And the response was, we're very busy, go online, click. Now, this was after 40 minutes of being in a queue. And I think far, far too often organizations have focused on the wrong end of the problem. You look at Jamie Oliver's restaurants. They died on their ass largely because he forgot what made a restaurant successful, which is great food and great ambience. So they created all these dark kitchens and the service went right through the floor. And before you know it, the customers uh, marched, you know, to, spoke with their feet. And I think it's far, far too rare where the entire revenue operation, the purchasing operation engaged together with the customer. 
They need to be speaking to end customers to understand the impact of their decisions and their behavior. Because at the end of the day, if your customers are not getting the outcomes that they want, they're going to leave in their droves. Mm -hmm. And then you've got the cost of customer acquisition, which is exceptionally expensive. Churn, massively expensive. And then you get the knock-on ripple effect, which is that you end up with disengaged employees and highly engaged employees to 273% more profitable than mildly engaged or actively disengaged employees. Share price of those companies grows 316% per annum faster than companies with mildly engaged or disengaged employees. Yeah, and I would say that most procurement teams in mature organizations, what I mean is they're not high growth companies, businesses that they support. Probably 5% of those procurement organizations, or maybe 10%, are truly thinking about the big picture and seeking to work you know, cross-functional, like you, t- you said, in service of what are the true goals of the business and how can we enable them and how we all can connect it as an internal ecosystem. The vast majority of the rest are all in silos. I would say when you're in high growth businesses, um, you know, those that are scaling up, uh, a lot of the tech firms are where it really is about enablement and growth enablement. You, you have a lot more of that collaboration because what the goals are are different. You know, the goals aren't how can you save us some money on the bottom line? The goals are how can you enable our infrastructure so that we can grow? And so you're measured in different ways. I remember a conversation with someone at a a high growth uh, tech company in Silicon Valley a few years ago. And he was saying he was the CPO of that organization. And he's telling me like, I don't have one cost saving goal. My goal is to take, is to enable these very highly paid software engineers that we got to pay half a million dollars a year for in San Francisco my job's to make sure they're not spending half their time working on buying services and buying products. And as much as of their time that I can take, that I can give them back is actually how I'm measured. And so that's my goal. That's really, really interesting. I remember reading a very interesting book called Loon Shots by Safi Bakal. Okay. And the basic premise is when a company is young, they take risks, they innovate. And there comes a point where the executives start to poo-poo any innovation and Mm risk-taking. And it behooves them to do that because it keeps them in a a comfy job. And I think it's really interesting in terms of picking your target market and your ideal customer. Because, you know, like uh, Phil has just said, if you're working with an organization where the opportunity cost of tying up half a million dollar a year engineers who presumably meant to be making three, four, five million back each, then it suddenly becomes a strategic imperative to purchase well, to partner with suppliers, to innovate. And that makes for far more interesting work rather than just turning up, doing a milk round, showing your catalog, telling them your price, being beaten up, and then walking away with a purchase order. So again, it really strikes me that procurement should really be the board's partner. But I I think much like finance and much like IT, they probably don't have the personality to play that political game. No, and and the organizations that they do play at that level are those that are low-margin businesses because they're doing it all based on the need to reduce bottom-line costs, so uh, predominantly manufacturing. 
you know, in high margin businesses, that's where the perception issue comes in. And honestly, it's on procurement to demonstrate to the rest of the organization what they can do for them, you know, rather than just waiting, you know, waiting to be called onto the field. So it's in procurement's own hands, but there aren't a lot of procurement organizations who are taking, you know, kind of getting a grip and, and being proactive in looking at how can we support the businesses in different ways, because okay. that's a risk. You know, that's a risk from a procurement leader's perspective. So this is a big question. We don't have a lot of time, so I recognize the challenge here. But if you were building a procurement function from scratch yeah. and you were in a mid-sized company that was scaling and historically you kind of just bought through line of business, yeah. now you're putting in place this uh, procurement function. Yeah. You're designing that operation what would that look like yeah so i'd start with enabling technology so how can we help the business buy the things that they need as quickly as possible um you know basically thinking about the idea of self-service procurement so for 80 percent of the things that a business needs procurement doesn't need to be involved in at all you know where procurement gets involved we become a, a bottleneck in the process so yes it's good for us to know what's happening so we can track the spend so we can track patterns so we can see if there's anything we can come back to and help for later but just let's get the get technology in place that's going to let the business continue to do what they've always done then i look at an operating model on basically three different parts of it you do need the tactical and then from a, and then you have the strategic perspective so the tactical is deals that need to be done they need some eyes they're relatively low importance we just need some negotiating. You know, you get a little team that can do that, that churns, and that's very tactical. But when you think about strategic, you know, my uh, my approach is two-tiered. So as most organizations will have like a group of procurement experts who know a particular category, who are responsible for that category, you know, that kind of trying to own everything there is related to that category. And they're called category managers. And those are the ones that are setting strategy. But they're for all but the biggest organizations, those people are generalists. So they don't truly understand the market. They don't really, they're not involved every day. They're just buying something every two years or every three years. And they're called on to then become the experts. That ends up in them still running a rather tactical uh, transactional process when they're in a strategic role. So the way that I go about that is I kind of create these two levels. One is a business partnering level and one is actually an ecosystem of experts on the outside that can help you understand the market. So from a business partnering perspective, the procurement people become like a, a delivery leader, an account executive, you know, the person that's liaising with the business to truly understand what they want, what their outcomes they are driving, what their challenges are, that sits in all, in all their executive team meetings, that really embeds with them to understand the business. And then they're figuring out, okay, what can we do from a procurement perspective to help them achieve the things that they're going to achieve? And then that's where you say, okay, well, I need to buy some, we need to be more effective in buying some cloud storage, let's say. I'm not the expert in that, but I'm going to go and find somebody who's the expert to help me very specifically do a project related to that to, to understand what the market looks like. So I still have all the data, but it's that expert isn't the one that's doing the doing. The person that's doing the doing is that person who has that kind of relational oversight and ownership. And it just changes the level of the conversation because you have somebody that's very, outcome-driven as opposed to process-driven. Interesting. Okay, um, let's uh, start wrapping up because we've hit the top of the hour and this has been really fascinating. Thank you. 
I am curious about one other thing, which is the analysts. I know that uh, the likes of Gartner, ISG, Forrester, they produce interesting reports. How often have you found that in spite of being at the top of the Forrester wave or in the strategic quadrant and market leader quadrant, the purchase has been horrifically wrong? Oh, all the time. My experience has been that a lot of times those exist to de-risk the reputational damage of sourcing (laughs) them and it going wrong. It's the whole IBM thing, you know, and that's, so those things are the idea used, but a lot of the time to validate the strategy, to say, well, they're, they're on the top of the wave or they're in that magic quadrant or whatever, you know, everyone else is using them. So if it goes wrong, like what, what else were we supposed to do? And that's why they're used. So, I mean, people use them a lot. There's obviously, it's obviously a good business model for those providers who are putting those charts together. But, you know, that's what I see is that being on there is no indicator of uh, or predictor of success. Okay, so one final question then, because I've suddenly had a great thought, so I'm not going to pass up the opportunity. (laughs) For a lot of complex purchases, so for IT, there's 20 different vendors in your cybersecurity stack. How important is it that suppliers know how to play nicely with their competitors? That's becoming more important. As we look at ecosystems, and that everyone operates in this ecosystem among each other, then you want to be able to foster good relationships between all the partners that you're working with in case you need to rely on them, in case we need to solve a challenge that that can only be solved by a couple of them coming together. And I do see that more and more. You know, I see, for example, some forward-thinking procurement teams bringing all of their providers in a particular space, and let's say it's in the IT space, and those people are competitors, but bringing them together and putting a challenge and like, let's figure this out collectively. Because the ones that are in that room recognize that they're solving industry challenges. Because if it's a challenge for your organization, it's a challenge for every organization. And if you collectively can solve an industry challenge, then you know that provides more opportunity for everybody in the room as opposed to looking at it very much of, I'm not going to talk to them because I don't want to give up my confidential information or I don't want to talk to my competitor. This is really interesting. I'm in the throes of developing a war room type concept using collaborative technologies where you bring together all of your people as a vendor so that all of you are working in collaboration because God knows that's often the hardest thing for a vendor uh, salesperson to uh, to tackle. Um, working with partners and working with the customer and together to co-develop the solution to solve their bigger problem rather than coming in tactically. And by doing that, what you're also doing is you're mapping out what next, what next, what next, so that you actually have uh, relevance and longevity within the account. What I'm finding, interestingly enough, is whilst there is a lot of interest They don't necessarily sit well together often because of competing objectives. And I think what is shifting it is making sure that the vendor and the partners are exclusively focused on the outcome that the customer is trying to achieve. Now, very often they don't really know what they're trying to achieve 
because they don't have the scope. They haven't really been exposed to enough in the marketplace. And I think this is where I think success in the future of our customers, our partners, and us as vendors is going to be dependent upon our ability to collaborate. Would you agree? Oh, 100%. Yeah, I think that that's the case. And from a procurement perspective and from an organizational perspective, the R&D capability of the supply market far, far, far exceeds any internal capability for research and development that you can have. And so as much as you can do as a procurement team to become a customer of choice, so the organizations with that who are developing whatever's next, whatever the innovations are next, whether it's an individual company or whether it's you know, um, a collection of companies in a marketplace who come together, you want to be the one that they're doing that with, not your competitor. That's an interesting note to end on. Okay, so Phil, a couple of quick questions then. You've got a golden ticket. You can go back to advise the idiot Phil age 23 when you knew everything. What advice would you give him that he'd have probably have ignored? Probably to not be as concerned about risk. And I say that from a perspective of, like, it took me... I always wanted to be to set up my own business and I would always tell myself that it was too much of a risk risky thing to do and so I didn't do that until I was mid to late 30s with you know one kid and another on the way and the mortgage and everything and I do wonder what the opportunities may have been if I'd have just thought you know screw it let's go and do it so that's probably what I would have told uh, myself is don't be afraid have confidence in yourself and times on your side it's almost never fatal as long as you can cope with the worst case scenario do it yeah okay what are you re- uh, reading or would you recommend people read what to listen to yeah right now i just started with uh, bob Iger's autobiography uh the disney ceo interestingly enough second time this week that's being recommended really yeah yeah i mean we live 10 minutes away from disney world here in florida so disney's a big part of our life and we did when we were in Los Angeles as well. We live very close to Disneyland. So it's a brand that, you know, we spend a lot of time with and around. I watched a masterclass that he did probably a couple of weeks ago. And I've had the book, you know, ready to read forever and never got around to it because I never have time to reading. So I downloaded the audio book after watching his masterclass and actually just started listening to it earlier today. So I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing what he's got to say. Very good. Okay. Let me ask you this. What are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? I think for in my business, it's you know enable is growth enablement and getting in place processes and structure and things that that bring that repeat, repeatable recurring revenue. We've got to a point where we've grown a lot. You know, we talked about this off mic. We just hired uh, somebody. We, you know, it's it's kind of taken five or six years to get to a point where we're really having knock on wood some success although I I never see that as being I never want to celebrate that too much because I know that uh, you know the bottom side of the roller coaster could always be just around the corner but you know how do we take that and make sure that we've got that I'm taking myself out of the equation a little bit more so that I'm not a bottleneck I think that's probably the biggest challenge on a day-to-day basis that I have is how can I get out of the way Uh, it's a really good question in that case a book that I've recommended many times on the podcast, but you will find very valuable, is The Road Less Stupid by Keith Cunningham. At the end of each chapter are a bunch of really shitty, horrible, uncomfortable questions. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is uh, every week, make sure that you set aside 45 minutes to an hour with you, a pen, and a notepad 
and one question and no interruptions. And keep asking the question, what activities am I too expensive to do? Yeah, because I often see this where owners or senior executives don't spend enough time asking that question. And so they end up doing low value activity. They could be paying someone $20, $30 an hour and they're on a $4,000 a day target. Just doesn't make sense. That's a great, great point. I'm going to look up that book and uh, I'm going to shove some time in my calendar. Every week without fail and treat it as if it's your most important customer because it is. Yeah. Excellent. Phil, how can people get hold of you? Easiest way is go to artofprocurement.com. That's our website. Or they can find me on LinkedIn, just Philip Eidson. And you work internationally or? I'm based here in Orlando, but uh, as folks can probably tell from the accent, I'm from uh, the UK originally and from Yorkshire. So we do work internationally. We have clients around the world. Excellent. Phil, thank you so much. You're welcome. I really appreciate the invite, Marcus. There's always a lot of things to talk about when it comes to uh, sales and procurement and breaking down some of those barriers and some of those myths, I think. Absolutely. I'd love to have you back. I'm thinking of a round table with a few people with slightly different perspectives, maybe someone from the uh, the sales side as well, so that we can uh, throw a cat among the pigeons. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Phil Ladson, thank you so much. Thanks, Marcus. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this enlightening, interesting, informative, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you're feeling the urge and feeling a little bit creative, then please go to either Apple or Google Podcasts and leave an honest review, one star, five stars, or anything in between, just honest. Now, if you're the owner or CEO of a tech company in the 10 to 50 million revenue range, and your goal is to grow your business and genuinely achieve sustainable, profitable hypergrowth with strong fundamentals in the business, staff who love coming to work and serving customers, and customers who love buying from you because you deliver phenomenal outcomes, and they keep coming back year after year, decade after decade, then let's schedule some time for a quick conversation. My email is marcus at laughs-last.com or direct message me on LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.